Please take your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we'll be focusing on verses 13 through 16. It's a pleasure, a privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to you today, to teach you. And uh, before I begin, I just want to pray for us. I want to pray that God would be at work to teach us to do what I'm incapable of doing and to work in your hearts to do what you're incapable of doing to make you more Christ-like, to make you more attuned to the will of God, more aware and in love with the glory of God. And so I want to pray to that end. Please pray with me. Father, I'm so grateful for this chance to be together once again as your people gathered from out of the world, being built up into a holy temple that glorifies your name, that praises the Son whose life was an atonement for our sin. Father, I pray now that through the preaching of your word, which you have ordained to take place in your church, that's taking place all over the country, all over the world, that you would be at work, that your spirit would be working to speak through the mouthpieces, the human mouthpieces that have been faithful and diligent to study. Lord, that you would reach our hearts and captivate them with truth, that we might love you more and know you more, to see you more clearly, the glory of the riches that we have in Christ, and that we'd be drawn to praise and worship and obedience. Father, teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me and we'll read Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." You may be seated, and I'd like to dismiss the children at this point to go to Children's Church. I'm going to ask us a question right off the bat. If you haven't gotten notes and you'd like to take notes, there are uh, handouts in the back, in the racks back there. But I'm going to start with a question this morning, and the question is, what pleases God? What pleases God? What will make him pleased with us? What will make him or cause him to approve of us? It's a reasonable question, and it's a fundamental question. It's one of those primary, ultimate questions of life that we must ask and answer, and that people all around the world throughout human history have tried to ask, or tried to answer, I should say, in a million different ways. Everyone wants the favor of God, but most are confused about how to receive it. They might say, eat this, not that. Wear this, not that. Go to church, give to charity, 
do these things, abstain from these things, don't heal anyone on the Sabbath, that would not please God, prepare a meal every day and set it out on the altar to that God out there in the jungle to him, will anyone who does not affirm the faith that you believe in, burn your babies alive, sacrifice them to the God to, uh, to appease him, to make him bless us so that he would not be angry with us. Humanity has come up with all kinds of ways to try to appease God, to earn his favor, to make him happy with them so that they won't face wrath or anger. Human religion has been said to be summed up in the statement that goes like this. It's man, it's us reaching up to God on our own terms, by our own means that we have conjured up to try to gain his approval, to try to appease him somehow. But true salvation is only found in God reaching down to us in grace and mercy, with favor. And that only comes, we only receive that through faith. And so the answer for us today that we want to look at is what pleases God? Faith pleases God. Or deeds of faith. Or a life lived according to faith. Faith pleases God. As we see a little bit further up in our chapter, Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Therefore, faith is the mandatory prerequisite for pleasing God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And not just believing, faith is believing, not just believing that he exists, but believing that he is good and rewards and fulfills promises to those who seek him. And we have to come to him on his terms, by grace, through faith, alone, in Christ alone. There's no other way to be pleasing to God. The faith that we express has evidence. As we know from James, faith without works is dead. Faith without works, faith without any evidence to back it up is empty. It's worthless and it's not saving faith. It's works built on the foundation of our deadness and sin, not the death of Christ. Works built not on the foundation of self-righteousness is what we need, but works built on the righteousness of Christ. Works result, flow from saving faith. And so we want to see some of those works today, and they're wonderfully illustrated for us in Hebrews chapter 11, which has been often called the Hall of Faith. And it is, is the, the author of Hebrews giving the, the, the recipients of this letter, Hebrew Christians, examples from the Old Testament, people from the Old Testament believed God, and it was counted to them, as righteousness. They believed God, therefore they followed through with that belief. They obeyed God when he spoke, and there was evidenced faith. We're going to look at that today and see what I'm calling the way of faith. It's the pathway, a life lived according to faith. These saints of old had different circumstances, just as we all do, right? So there, you, you can see some of the names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Moses, Enoch, Noah, Abel. All of these people exercised faith. 
And they had different circumstances in which they exercised faith, just as we do. But they exercised the same faith. And what they shared in common was an ultimate, defining, driving conviction to seek first God and his kingdom and his righteousness. This is the way of faith. And so we're going to look at today three attributes of the way of faith that are common to us all. Three attributes of faith. See, this, this um, passage here comes in the middle of all these descriptions of these various Old Testament people of faith. And it kind of sums up what they had in common. The first point is the way of faith is long. The way of faith is a long road. As the old military song goes, it's a long way to Tipperary. I've never been there. I don't really know by by experience. But the way of faith, similarly, is a long road. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not the way of instant gratification. That's a hard concept for us as Americans in the 21st century to grasp, isn't it? We don't want to wait for anything with our Google in our pockets and our Amazon Prime memberships, we don't have to wait long for anything, okay? When we go to the store and we find that there are three people in the checkout line, we can't handle it. This is too many people in the checkout line. This is the worst. I don't have time to wait for that, right? My kids recognized instant gratification recently. We were on vacation with my family um, just a long weekend away in southern Wisconsin, and the place we were staying had a big old gumball machine, and I mean like the the kind that stands on the floor, a big cast iron base, it's got a big bulb at the top just filled with gumballs, and that is like heaven to to my children. They just loved that. Somehow, every chance they got, they they were, you know, chewing gumballs, and I don't know where the quarters were from. Later on, we found out that Grandpa seems to have an endless supply of quarters, um, and so, you know, the kids are loving it. You know, of course, Rachel and I are loving it because the kids are constantly chewing gum. And, um, you know, pretty soon it's stuck in the carpet and wherever else. But anyway, you put in a quarter, you turn the, the doohickey, and doodly-doo, you get a gumball, okay? I mean, it's, it's instant gratification, and they loved it. But for us, in the life of faith, on the way of faith, there is no instant gratification. It's a, it's a long-term, steady state, the hard way that God leads us on, sacrificing, being patient, until finally the ultimate return comes. So how long will it take? How long will it take for us to get that return on our investment? How long will it take and how many quarters do we have to put into the gumball machine before we finally get a gumball? Well, Abraham and Sarah waited a long time. If you look at a few verses previously, uh, God promised that they would have a son. But what does it say about Abraham and Sarah? Verses 11 and 12, Sarah was past the age for conceiving and Abraham was as good as dead. Wow, that's quite a description that way. Well, Abraham, I'm not sure how to put this, but you're so old, you might as well be dead. That's basically what you're good for, okay? Not my words. It took Noah a long time to build the ark. He's another um, example given to us in the previous verses. Noah built the ark, took him a long time, many years, but through 
that ark, he and his family would be saved from the judgment of God on the earth. Okay? But is that all that's meant by a long time? You might have to wait years, but eventually in this life, you will get all the good things God has promised to you. Is that what's intended? Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They died without receiving the things God promised them. Are we sure this is worth it? We better figure out what's going on here. These people lived their whole lives trusting God, sacrificing, leaving family and comfort, and he didn't give them what they promised, what he promised before they died. I think we as humans are pretty naturally good. We're pretty naturally concerned with risk aversion, right? We want to count the cost. We want to make sure that the, the, the reward is worth the risk, that the return is, is worth the investment, and we make decisions that way all the time with our finances, with our schedules, and on and on. We're calculating risk, okay? And so as we evaluate the trustworthiness of God here, the trustworthiness that his promises will actually be fulfilled to us, we need to ask the question and answer the question, what things did God promise these Old Testament saints that they didn't receive while they were on this earth? These all, just a note, these all died in faith. These all refers especially to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, God's people. And they certainly got to receive some of the things God promised, right? I mean, Abraham and Sarah had their promised son. So what's missing? Well, if you think back to the covenant God makes with Abraham, what else did he include? What else had he promised? There was also land and descendants, Did Abraham live long enough to see his descendants become as numerous as the sand on the shore or the stars in the sky? No. Did he live long enough to see those descendants take possession of that physical promised land in Canaan? Also no. And what about blessing? Abraham, the other heroes of the faith, certainly received temporal blessings, all kinds of promises of God they saw fulfilled to them, but they died without receiving the final, most important blessing that was promised, which is the focus of this text. The promised blessing they hadn't received before dying is identified in verses 10, 14, and 16 as a city, a country, and a homeland. This promised city, we need to figure out, what what is this promised city? So verse 14, they were looking for a homeland, They were wandering through this life, following God, trusting his word, that he would be faithful to his promises, looking for a homeland, literally a fatherland, a place of belonging, a place of heritage, a place of community, a place of security and safety and foundations. All these terms of locale, city, country, homeland, what's the significance? Is is this homeland simply the promised land of Canaan? that was not yet acquired by the people of God? In verse 10, it talks about this city again, and it says it's a city with foundations. And that's contrasted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob having lived in tents. They were sojourners. They were, they were nomads living in tents and wandering 
through the wilderness. They themselves did not possess the promised land. However, we get some clarity when we keep reading. Look at verse 16. This is not an earthly city. This is not an earthly country. It's a heavenly one. And so you won't find this physical location. You won't find a place or a city or a country on this earth that's being described here. It's not in the Middle East. It's not anywhere else. The promised land was a literal promise to be literally fulfilled for the people of Israel. However, more significantly, it was a physical and temporal illustration of an eternal heavenly reality. And what they wanted more than a place to belong in this world was a place to belong for eternity. We also get some clarity from Verse 10, the designer and builder of this city is God himself. Now, all over the world, there are beautiful cities, right? I think of Dubai, you know, in the United Arab Emirates. Dubai is a beautiful, beautiful city. Well-designed, it's very aesthetically pleasing. Even from the Google, uh, the Google Earth view, you zoom in and you're like, wow, it's amazing, who put this together? And um, it's a beautiful city, but... All the best architects and all the best engineers and all the best city planners could not come up with a city that's as beautiful and as safe and secure as the one that God, the builder of the universe, could create. And so they're not satisfied with anything that they can find on this earth. They're looking for a heavenly home. And this eternal dwelling place, this heavenly city, is the destination Of the way of faith. The way of faith leads to the heavenly city. The Old Testament people had little information about all God would accomplish to make this possible, but they certainly learned that the way of faith is long and it's patient and it perseveres. They couldn't have enjoyed the blessings of this promised city until their earthly life was over because the city wasn't earthly, it was heavenly. But verse 13 does say that they saw these promises, the things that were promised they did not receive, but they saw them and they greeted them from afar. Well, how is that possible? How could they see and greet these things if they died without receiving them and they're heavenly, they're not on this earth? Well, of course, this section of Hebrews is all about faith. And if we look at verse 1, we see the definition of faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not just blind, and it's not just, I'm saying there's a chance. It's not just hypothetical or potential The promises of God received by faith are sure. Faith is assurance. Faith is conviction of things unseen. So physical eyes are of no use in perceiving the things of God, the promises of God that are unseen. They say seeing is believing, and maybe that was the case for Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? He's with the disciples after the crucifixion and he says, I will not believe that Jesus has raised from the dead until I see him and I can touch the scars. Then Jesus shows up and says, here I am, Thomas. 
here are the scars. Would you like to feel them and be assured that it's really me? Thomas is, of course, put in his place. He's humbled. He's ashamed. But he believes. And Jesus says, blessed are those who believe but haven't seen. Faith is being sure and convicted of something that we cannot see. I'm not saying faith isn't reasonable. I'm not saying it's not rational. Faith is certainly reasonable and rational. We have all kinds of evidence of God and his faithfulness that we can see. But the things of God that he promises that we have not yet received, we trust by faith. We believe and walk by faith, not by sight. And let me make a point here about the things that you can't see. There are things in this world, there are things that exist that cannot be seen and cannot be touched that are eternally more worthwhile and significant and consequential than the things that you can see and touch. Namely, your soul. About which Jesus said, even if you gain the whole world, everything the world has to offer you, if you gained it all, it would not add up to enough worth to be exchanged for your own soul. There are things that you can't see or touch that are infinitely greater value and consequence than the things you can see and touch. So these Old Testament saints walked the way of faith and they saw and greeted the promises of God, not with their physical eyeballs, but with eyes of faith. They trusted God. If we look down in verses 39 and 40, the very end of the chapter, we see some similar verses. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So that could be confusing on its face, right? What, what has God provided? They did not receive the things God had promised for our sake, so we could receive something better? What is that? Well, The theme of Hebrews is said to be Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. It's all about our Lord, the Christ. He is the fulfillment of God's promised salvation. He is the only door through which we can enter by faith into the heavenly city. He's the revelation of God through which we can know the object of our faith in a way the Old Testament saints never could. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know about Jesus. They just trusted that God was going to provide a way. Jesus, we know. Jesus, we see in Scripture. We see what he did on our behalf. We see all the things that he's fulfilled. We see all the ways, especially in Hebrews, he's better. He's a better king. He's better than the angels. He's a better priest. He's a better mediator. He's greater than Moses. He's a better sacrifice and the only sacrifice that's able to atone for our sin and make us pleasing to God. All this is ours in Christ, but the saints of old didn't know it. They didn't see it. They didn't know what God would do to accomplish salvation, but they knew he would. They trusted him to save them and to provide. Like Abraham's simple confession of faith, the Lord will provide a lamb. And we know that holy lamb of God, it is Jesus Then at the end of verse 40, there's an interesting phrase, apart from us, they, these Old Testament saints, should not be complete. 
And the, the point there quickly is just that because there is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, he is the same mediator for us and the Old Testament saints, though they had no knowledge of the specifics. Because we have one mediator, we, the church, are in the most important way united with the people of God of old. Lastly, from verse 13, these died in faith. We see that they died, but they died in faith. And that is that faith characterized them until their very last breath. Till their dying day, they walked with God by faith. Faith that perseveres to the end, by the way, is not optional. It's essential. True faith never gives up or walks away. Jesus attests to that in Matthew 24, 10 through 13, when he says, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Only the one who endures to the end will be saved. There are all kinds of people who make professions of faith that they're Christians. They might attend church for a while and they might look like there's some growth there. And then they walk away and they leave the faith. There are so many tragic examples that come to mind from Scripture. They're characterized in the parable of the soils where the seed of the gospel is planted and in two of the soils, a shoot grows up out of the soil and it looks like there's going to be real life there. Like, like the gospel has taken hold and put roots down. And there's going to be fruit produced and a plant starts to grow. And then this individual, perhaps because of the cares of the world, like Paul's companion Demas who left him because he loved the world, the cares of the world, the distraction of the world, the the temptations of the world overtake them and they decide this, this present world is better than what God offers me. In Christ, and so they walk away. Or they're drawn away from the faith by the persecution of the word. The persecution of the word. What is that? The persecution of the word is when a truth or a demand of Scripture confronts the unredeemed heart of someone who maybe is in church, who maybe looks like a Christian from the outside. And when they encounter, when they interact with something in Scripture that seems too oppressive or too difficult or too ridiculous or too foolish to continue believing, they decide it's not worth it and they walk away, proving ultimately that there never was true faith there in the first place. Okay? It's not a Christian losing his salvation. Okay, but it's someone who looked, appeared to be a Christian, now proving that they're certainly not. Likely, all of us know someone who fits in this category. And it's tragic, it's painful, maybe, maybe a spouse, even maybe a child. And it's painful. But the truth is, as John writes in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 
Faith perseveres and faith continues walking with God according to his word and with the people of God to the very end. Be warned also that in your own life, in the life of one of your children, a childhood profession of faith is worthless if it leads to an adulthood life of disobedience and ignorance of God. We need to be careful about the stock that we place in a sinner's prayer because if there's no evidence that true saving faith has taken root, that the gospel has taken hold, and that these people are walking the way of faith to the heavenly city, there is no life. There is, they're not on the way of faith. They're on the way to destruction. Secondly, the way of faith is exclusive. The way of faith is long, and the way of faith is exclusive. There's one way to God, we know this, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. That's his provision for us to be saved. We come to him on his terms, and the people who have come to God on his terms declare something, they speak something with their lives. Look at what it says in verse 14. People who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Well, what did they speak? What what did these patriarchs speak? They spoke what it says at the end of verse 13, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They spoke their lives were a conversation. They conducted themselves in a way that spoke to say that they were exiles and strangers in this world. On this earth. Reminded, of course, of the phrase from the hymn, This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. And in a way, that is an accurate description of what's taking place here, of these lives. The journey of faith is likened to a pilgrimage, a a journey, a, 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 a pathway, lifelong, on the way to heaven. And the faithful saints that embarked on this journey confessed that they were citizens, not of any city, any, any municipality, any country of this world, but of heaven. And so they recognized as citizens of heaven and not of this earth that they were strangers, they were foreign. They were like aliens sojourning through a place in which they didn't truly belong. And that is this world as it is under the curse of sin under the God of this world, the devil. To be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to be an alien in this world. Do you believe that? And does your life reflect that? Where does your allegiance lie? We are estranged from this world. We are foreign to it. We are visitors traveling through. No doubt, John Bunyan was influenced by this passage, by this text, when he wrote his allegory, his very famous allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. Perhaps you've thought of it as I've been speaking. Christian the Pilgrim sets out on a pathway of faith from the city of destruction, and many are those who come along, his own wife even, to try to dissuade him from the path. Go back. You're making a fool of yourself. You're making a a huge mistake. And of course, along the way, there are all kinds of temptations and pleasures and promises 
that, that, that offer supposedly a better way, a quicker way, an easier way than the way of faith, that narrow path. But he finds out quickly they're all traps, they're deceptions that would keep him from ever reaching the celestial city. There's only one way, the long, narrow, difficult road on which we persevere by faith, not by sight. That's a good book, by the way. If you haven't read it, you should read it. You should read it to your children, your grandchildren. Look at verse 15. We know that they were committed to this way of faith because, in verse 15, if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But instead, they desire a better country. Abraham could have turned back, right? God calls him out of, out of the land of Mesopotamia, and he says, you know, he makes these promises to him, I will make of you a great nation, etc. What, what if Abraham was like, okay, that sounds pretty good, I'll go for, for you know, kind of see what this is about. And if he wanted to turn back, he could have. Right? That's what, it's, that's what this says. If they wanted to go back and to stop believing God and to leave the way of faith, they could have. But they didn't. Because to go back would be to disobey God, thereby actively betraying any spoken profession of faith. When you make a decision to believe and follow God, there is no turning back. There is no going back. Luke 9 61 and 62, in in that passage, Jesus teaches us yet again. Someone came and said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There is no going back. The way of faith is exclusive. You enter onto the way of faith through the one door who is Christ, And there is no turning back. Remember Lot's wife, a sad illustration of this principle. God graciously provides their family with salvation, a way of escape from his judgment on the cities where they lived. He says, go and don't look back. But she's not so sure she wants to leave behind these cities, this home, these, these, these places which essentially epitomized the, the depravity of men and the twisted, sinful pleasures of the world. And she looks back. As they're on their way, she turns around and she looks back and she herself is destroyed. Brothers and sisters, there are sheep and there are goats. There, there are two categories. There's no riding the fence You're in or you're out. Heaven and the path that leads to it are exclusive. No one can serve two men. And no one can be committed to both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Instead, these saints of old desired a better country. They didn't look back. They didn't turn back. By faith, they were convinced that all the pleasures and the experiences and the status and the success that this world can offer were worthless compared to the glory of the promises of God. Spurgeon understood that the way of, the faith, that the way of faith is exclusive 
Because faith is the only way to receive a new heart with new desires that fit us for this heavenly city that God has prepared. He says, we cannot go to heaven as worldly men, for there would be nothing there to gratify us. So thankfully, the way of faith changes us, and God fits us and gives us the desires to be with him. Third, the way of faith pleases God. The way of faith ultimately pleases God. Verse 16 says, As it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them this city. God is not ashamed. Look at the therefore. For this reason, because they believed God and walked according to that faith and therefore desired to dwell with God in this city, instead of being satisfied with any alternative here on earth, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. That is an amazing statement. And by the way, it, it switches to present tense there, not just not, not past tense where he's telling, recounting the events, the history, but now present tense, they desire a better city and God is presently not ashamed to be called their God. Of course, God identifies himself specifically to Moses in Exodus 3 as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there he's literally identifying himself with these patriarchs. God is not ashamed to be identified by anyone as their God. A way to say it positively is that God approves of them. God is pleased with them. Isn't that the best we could hope for? I don't know about you, but when I look at myself, I see my own heart. And I'm overwhelmed at times with all the things that need to change yet. I see my weakness. I see my failures. I see my tendency to be lazy and selfish. I see the remaining sin in me. And how can I say that God is not ashamed to be my God? Could I say that? Could God say that of me, that he's not ashamed to be the God of Will Zelizniak? Could God say that about you? Could God say he's not ashamed to be your God? Is that possible? Do you believe that? I believe the answer is yes for two main reasons. First of all, the basis of these Old Testament saints' approval before God is the same basis for our approval before God. Faith. They weren't super saints. They weren't somehow just wonderfully holy and therefore God said, wow, look at what they've done. I'm super impressed. So now I'm going to be called their God. That's not what happened. They were sinners like you and I. The Bible records many of their failures for us to see. So we don't idolize them. That's not the point of this passage. We are, we are to model our lives after how they lived in obedience to God, but they are not the heroes of the story, ultimately. They are sinners like you and I, saved by grace through faith. 
Faith not works justified them, and faith not works justifies us. The same bloody cross is where Jesus atoned for their sin and ours. God the Son, by the way, was not ashamed to take on our humanity, to humble himself, to take on our sin and give his life on the cross in our place so that we would be approved unto God. Therefore, I believe the answer is yes. God can be unashamed to be called our God. For God, Christian, Christian, for God to disapprove of you and to be ashamed of you so that it would result in condemnation instead of commendation at the last day would mean that God would have to disapprove of and be ashamed of his own son. That's a powerful statement, but a biblically accurate statement. If you are in Christ, you are approved of by God the Father. The second reason I think this can be true of us is that true saints don't fall away. True saints don't turn back. We have not reached the end of our lives, right? We're all here. We're breathing. We're still living, okay? Hopefully, most of us. Um, it's getting long, I know, but uh, please stay with me. Stay alive, okay? So we, we haven't reached the end of our lives. Our, our path, our way of faith isn't done. We're not at the end of the journey. So how do we know whether or not we'll stay the course? Well, ultimately, it's the promises of God. Look at what it says of, of Sarah in verse 11. Even though she was past the age of being able to conceive, she believed God because she considered him faithful who had promised. And that same faithful God is just as faithful today as he was then And he is faithful to keep his promises to his children. So praise God. It's not up to us because if it were up to us, if it were up to me, I would lose my salvation every chance I got. That is the the extent of my ability. That is the extent of my merit and my, my grit and determination to stay in the kingdom of God. It's not by our own strength or skill or merit, but by grace. Philippians 1, six. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul reminds us that true Christians can have radical and serious falls, but never total or final falls from grace. So of course, we're not done yet. We're still sin. But if we are his, we will not fall away. Just in the previous chapter, verse uh, 39 of chapter 10, we will not be as those who shrink back, who, who shrink back and walk away from faith and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. God is pleased with his son, therefore God is pleased with all those who by faith are united with his son. I just want to close with a challenge to all of us to perform an audit, okay? We're performing an audit of our value system, okay? 
And value is a subjective appraisal of worth. Okay? So, so something might be worth a lot to me, but it might not be worth very much to you. Okay? That's my value system competing with your value system. For example, maybe a, a circumstance that you're more familiar with, a situation. Uh, a buyer of a home is probably going to have a much lower value that they place on the home that's for sale than the seller. The seller thinks it's worth a lot more than the buyer thinks it's worth, typically, right? And the tax assessor who comes and evaluates your home is probably going to place a much higher value on your home than the bank's appraiser, okay? And that's just, that's just what we're dealing with, all right? So value is subjective. It's, it's my estimation of how much something is worth, and we need to take an audit of our value system. It's been said that we can identify or someone else can identify in us what's valuable to us by how we spend our time. Well, that's true, certainly true. But I want you to consider that there are also things that we value and things that we desire in our own hearts that maybe aren't as obvious. Maybe we don't have opportunities to spend as much time on those things and maybe not many people know about those values, about those desires. Let's not forget about those either. So the question for us today is, does our value system agree with God's system of value? Two very short parables from Matthew 13. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has, And buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had to buy it. This is the value of the kingdom of heaven. This is the value of being on the way of faith and being a recipient of all the promises of God that find their yes in Christ. Is the heavenly city, is the kingdom of God valuable enough for us to give up all our earthly treasures, all of our comforts, all of our ambitions and goals? What is the kingdom of God worth to you? Quickly, can we have our cake and eat it too? Don't we all want that? We, like, we, we want to have this cake, but we also want to eat it, but we still want to have it. Can we do both? Like, oh, I'm so glad, so glad God's not requiring me to abandon my comfort and safety and my worldly possessions to follow him. Only missionaries have to do that, right? What? Yes, he does. He's absolutely requiring you to abandon all those things in your value system, in your heart. They must be valued less. They must be counted as nothing for the sake of the kingdom of God. If you don't value those things less, you'll never make it. You'll never arrive to the heavenly city because you're not on the way of faith. There's something more valuable to you. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life in this world, holds on to it, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Leonard Nimoy says, if you chase two rabbits, you will lose them both. If you try to chase the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, you lose them both along with your soul. So we've studied an example from these Old Testament saints to pattern our lives after. This is, this is a, a model we can follow. But the author of Hebrews also gives many warnings of people in the Old Testament that we shouldn't follow. People who exemplified rebellion against God and unbelief in God. I'm going to read an account from Hebrews 3, a warning, an exhortation. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, the exhortation, the warning to the Hebrew audience and to you and I, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Some of you in this room are held captive by the deceitfulness of sin. You're bound to it and it to you. You don't believe God, so you're not on the way of faith that leads to heaven. Will you hear this warning Today, while it is called today, while you have, a, have time, not like Esau who traded in his birthright for a single meal and then sought to repent but found no place for it, even though he sought it with tears, he gave it up. While it is called today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Turn from your sin and your broken value system to see the beauty of God in Christ and the salvation that he offers freely to you if you receive it by faith. So those of you who are brothers and sisters, we are, we are in Christ, we are on this way of faith together. Please will you exhort me and allow me to exhort you not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As long as it's called today, as long as we still have time, the opportunity, exhort one another not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Not to let covetousness or discontent with where God has us or what he's given to us, 
not to let idolatry and unbelief grow in our hearts, leading to us turning away, falling away from the living God. But that by the grace of God, this is how God is working, by the grace of God, through each other, we would exhort one another and encourage one another and keep each other accountable so that we remain on the way of faith and our faith perseveres and our confidence holds firm to the very end. To our dying day, we can confess that Jesus is worth it. Take all this world, but give me Jesus because Jesus is better. This is the way of faith. Let's pray. Father, you're so good and you're so kind to us. Look at what you've done. Look at how you've revealed yourself in your son and in your word. And you've given us this time, this ability to study it, to learn it, to know you, to know your great faithfulness and your great grace and mercy. And you offer it freely. You offer salvation to us to receive freely if we believe. Lord, give us the grace to believe. Give us the grace to live in the way of faith, to live obedient lives, to reach the end. Hold us firm in our confidence. Make that condition how we live our lives today. And that at the end, we would enjoy you forever in the city that you have prepared for us to dwell with you in your presence, in your glory that you would not be ashamed of us. Hold us firm to the end, Father. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.